join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get into this passage together. Well, Father, we want the whole earth to be filled with your glory. Uh, we know it is already in, in, in ways to some extent. You have, you have shown yourself. You have revealed yourself in, in so many different ways. So your glory is out there. Uh, when, we, when we look at creation, we see your glory. We, we see things that had to have come from you, things that, that must have a divine source, things that are magnificent, things that are, are marvelous. They are brilliant. They, they are not human. And therefore, we see how you are glorifying yourself, your name, through the things that you have made. We know that your glory is out there through the word that we hold in our hands this morning. Uh, you, have, you have caused men to, to write down truth about you. And so your glory has been revealed through your word. But we long for that day when all sin is done away with, all sinners, all sin, all the corruption of sin, the curse is gone, and all that will remain is you with your people glorified, and the whole new creation is full of your glory and nothing else. We long for that day as we, as we wander through this sin-cursed life and we struggle. We struggle physically. We struggle even more spiritually. It just makes us long more so every day for, for that time when, when you fix it all as you have promised to do. So Father, give us patience as we wait. Keep growing our faith as we wait for that day. Grow us in sanctification as we see that day approaching. We want to be ready we want to be found by our bridegroom, pure and spotless, without blemish, fit for him, ready for him. So, Father, help us along in that process as well. And we know how you do it. You, you do it through your Holy Spirit using your word. And so that's what excites us about times like these, where we can have your word open in front of us. We can read it. We can think. We can listen to someone who has studied it and who has been gifted to teach it. And, and we can have the expectation that that you're going to teach, you're going to show us your glory, you're going to sanctify us, you're, you're going to, to help us to, to see things that don't belong and, and to cut those things out, and you're going to grow us in our appreciation of Christ and the glory of your grace in him. So we're, we're excited about this time. We're eager to see what you do. Do a lot. Do, do, do things that surprise us. Do more than we expect. <laughs> do things we don't even really want you know, maybe we came here this morning holding on to some sin in our life, and we want to keep it. We want to hold on to it. It's fun. It's bringing us pleasure. Well, Father, make us give it up. Reveal it to us this morning. Expose it so clearly that we start to see it as you do, and we can't stand it, and we want to run away from it. Father, do things that will bring glory to your name and joy to your people. It's, it's really that simple. That's what we, that's what we want. So, Father, do that as only you can, and help me as I teach. I, I do pray that you will use me for, for Christ's sake this morning, and I pray, praise you for all that you do, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we started a, a new Sunday morning study, a, sh a short sermon series just a few weeks ago, and we continue that this morning. And if you'll remember, we've, we've been looking for help to try to live the Christian life as Christ deserves. That's really what we're after. I mean, he died for us, so we want to live for him, right? It, it really is that simple. It's that reaction to his sacrifice on our behalf. But we need help with that. 
And so to get that help, we've been going into Scripture and looking at some snapshots of believers who lived before us, believers for whom there is material recorded in God's Word for our help. We've been looking at them. So we've looked at two men so far. We've looked at Joseph of Arimathea, and we've looked at Joseph, who was nicknamed Barsabbas and surnamed Justice. Now, those two men, as we saw, were different in countless ways. But at the same time, they showed us something very similar about the life of a disciple. And what they showed us, what we learned from them, is that the strength of the Christian life is tied directly to our exposure to Christ. We saw that out of both of those men. What we're seeing of Christ will produce what we're doing for Christ because it's causing what we're thinking of Christ. And you can't separate those things from each other. Either way, going well, going poorly. It's all tied directly to our exposure to Christ. The more we see of Christ, the more we're around Christ, the more we're where he's the center of attention, the more we learn about him, the more we understand, the more we appreciate the more genuine and public and active and selfless and generous our discipleship to him will become. That that is just a fact. You've probably traced that in your own life, and we saw it from these two Josephs as well. Where we see very little active devotion to Christ, there is always too little exposure to Christ. That is a rule. Now this morning we're going to look at our third character. And this is not going to be so much a snapshot as it's more like a highlight reel. Because when you get into Scripture and you start seeing this guy, there's a lot of information about him. Unlike the last two guys we looked at where, okay, here's what we've got and we can handle them in one sermon. This guy, there's probably enough information on him to go several sermons. We're not going to do that. But just so you know, what we see this morning of him is not everything. And I would encourage you to keep looking at his his life. This is someone who is more familiar to us, and largely because of his association with someone else we know so well. If you watch the life of the Apostle Paul, you're invariably going to see this guy. It seems like where the Apostle Paul was, this guy was. And what the Apostle Paul was doing, often we saw this guy doing with him. But it's not with Paul where we see this guy for the first time. It's while Paul was still an enemy of Jesus Christ. And so you're at Acts chapter 4. I want you to read this passage along with me, not out loud, obviously, but follow along Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, and we'll find out who this is I've been talking about so far. Verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, A Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
So there's our guy. You saw him in verses 36 and 37 called Joseph. And some of you in your translation don't have Joseph. You had Joseph because Joseph is an abbreviation for Joseph. So here we go. Here's another Joseph. And no, I did not plan it this way. Valerie asked me that last week. Are you only doing Joseph's? And I didn't plan to do it that way, but it's, it's happening that way. I don't, I don't think it's going to after this morning. But yeah, here we go, another Joseph. Now, he's primarily known as we know him, and that's by his nickname, Barnabas. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes, where he got that, that from and what it means. So what do, we, what do we know about Barnabas? We'll just go ahead and use his nickname the whole time this morning because I'll get confused and, and start calling him something that, that he doesn't need to be called. What do we know about him? Well, look at verse 36 where Luke recorded for us that he is a Levite. All right, now that's, that's something we understand a little bit about, right? When we hear about a Levite, we've got historical information, background from our study of Scripture. So we know, first of all, that means this guy is a Jew. Okay, this is, this is not a Greek, this is not a Roman. This man is a Jew. He is a descendant of Jacob's son, Levi. He's of that tribe, the tribe of Levi, and we know particularly what that tribe was known for or, or the responsibility that tribe was given. The tribe of Levi, that's where the priests came from, and that's where the Levites came from. So this tribe had the men who were responsible for the worship in the tabernacle and then in the temple. You know what the priests did? They, they represented God to man. They represented men before God, and then the Levites were their assistants, so Whatever form, offerings, sacrifices, whatever form worship was taking in the tabernacle or in the temple, men from this tribe, the tribe of Levi, were responsible for the work, for the assistance to get all that done the way it was supposed to be done. Okay, This Barnabas was of that tribe. He, he was a Levite by birth. Now also, Luke tells us he was of the country of Cyprus. Now you wouldn't expect that. Of a Levite, you would place him within the confines of Israel, but, but not this guy, not Barnabas. He was from an island, the island of Cyprus, which was located about 250 to 300 miles northwest, that way for you, but northwest from Jerusalem, okay? The, the island of Cyprus. It wasn't just an island, it was its own country out in the Mediterranean Sea. That's Barnabas's country of origin, okay? So that's where he started. That's where his family was when he was born. He was born and raised there on the island of Cyprus. Now, what was he doing there? How did his family get there? Well, we don't know for sure. It's very likely, you know, when we studied, we studied the book of Jonah and Nahum, we talked a little bit about that running history of, of God with his people Israel and then with, with Judah. And you'll remember there was an Assyrian attack on the northern kingdom of Israel. There was a Babylonian attack on the southern kingdom of Judah. And when those two attacks took place, survivors scrammed. They, they ran. They fled for their lives out into other countries. And it's likely, it's probable, I can't prove it, but it's probable that his family, six, 700 years before Acts chapter 4, had fled there during one of those attacks. Again, I don't know for sure, but, but it's likely that's when it happened. So we can surmise that uh, Barnabas was born on the island of Cyprus. He was raised on the island of Cyprus. Quite possibly, it was still his home. 
But even if he wasn't living there at this particular time, he had started there. He had moved from the island of Cyprus to wherever it was else that he was living at this point in time. Now, Acts chapter 4, we find him in Jerusalem. And what's he doing in Jerusalem? I mean, what, 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 what do we see him involved in? What is he doing there? Well, again, in verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed, that's who he's with. That's who he's a part of. That's the group that Luke is associating him with. As, group, as Luke describes that group, he describes Barnabas as part of that group. He was with the multitude of those who believed. Now, we know something about this group, don't we? We, we know a little bit about their origin and about their composition. This is the Acts chapter 2 group. We're not going to flip back there and read all the verses about about how they started or how that group got its beginning, but you basically already know, right? You remember the, 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 the occasion, you remember the situation where it was the Feast of Weeks. So this is one of those annual feasts where Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem for, for, for this feast, for this celebration. That had taken place. So there were Jews from pretty much every country out there, not just the ones that lived in and around Jerusalem. And they had come to Jerusalem, and something amazing happened while they were there. Peter and the rest of the, rest of the apostles had the Holy Spirit come down on them, and they started speaking in tongues miraculously. So they spoke in their dialect, but these other Jews ended up hearing in their own dialect, and, and it caught their attention. They, under, they, they saw this doesn't happen. We've never seen this happen before. What's going on? It caught their attention, and so Peter took advantage of that, that phenomenon, and he preached that very famous Pentecost sermon that we know so well. As the people listened to Peter preaching, they were cut to the heart over their sin, especially their sin against Jesus of Nazareth, they believed in him, and that changed their lives forever at that point in time. We know right after that, instead of them going back home after the Feast of Weeks, most of them, many of them at least, stayed in Jerusalem. They stayed there with the apostles and with the, the other believing residents of that area. They stayed there learning and worshiping and serving together with all that multitude of believers. They stayed there because they were thrilled with Jesus, and that's where they had heard about him, and they didn't want to leave Jerusalem, so, so they all stayed put. Well, how do we know Barnabas had been with that group all along? Well, notice in verse 36, once again, it says, And Joseph, who was named Barnabas by the apostles. Now, now what does that mean? What does that tell you? Well, it takes a while to get to know someone well enough to give them a nickname, doesn't it? I mean, we were talking about this last, last week with that other Joseph and, and his nickname. Well, with Barnabas, he got that nickname from the apostles, which means he had spent enough time around them, close time around them, with them watching him, among them, among other people, for them to come to some conclusions about this guy and say, well, what we're seeing of this guy, we're going to start calling him Barnabas instead of his given name, Joseph. Well, what does that name mean? Well, you see that, that Luke translated it as son of encouragement, but that's not the literal translation of Barnabas. If you split Barnabas in two, you have bar and nabas. Bar means son. The word nabas or naba means to prophesy. So Barnabas's literal 
translation of this, this nickname means son of prophecy. So you ask, well, then why are the apostles calling him son of encouragement? I mean, those are two different things. How do you reconcile those two names or translations of that, that nickname? Well, it's very simple, actually. Barnabas had been given a speaking gift. Barnabas had been empowered by the Holy Spirit to deliver God's word. And we're, we see that, we know that, as later on he traveled around with Paul and they were preaching, they were proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the word of God all over the place, and people were responding as Barnabas preached. And so we know he had this empowerment from the, the Holy Spirit to speak God's word. But what we also know is that he particularly used that speaking gift, like the translation says, as son of encouragement. He used his words to encourage. And the word that is translated as encouragement, you would recognize in the Greek, it's the word paraclete. Where do you know that from? It's the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus called the Holy Spirit when he said, I'm going to send the comforter. I'm going to send the helper after I leave, paraclete, the one who will come alongside you and speak to you or speak for you, for your comfort, for your encouragement, for your help. Well, this is the word that the apostles chose to use for Joseph. We watch him. We're seeing him in different circumstances. We're seeing him interact with people, interact with us. And what we see of this man is he's using this special ability to use words to come alongside people and help them with his words. To speak to them for their help or to speak for them on their behalf to help them and build them up. And so again, that's what these apostles saw in Joseph. Joseph, this was such a strong feature about him. He was so active with it. He was, he was so good at it. He was bearing such fruit by doing it that they hung that label on him so everyone would know that about him. Oh, that's Barnabas. And when someone here would hear Barnabas, they knew exactly what that meant. Well, he's an encourager. He's someone who builds up others and and helps them where they can't help themselves, and he brings them along. He just happened to be doing it with his words, okay? So we we know that about Barnabas. There's another thing that Luke points out, and this is the last thing that I'll, I'll point out from this passage. But Luke also pointed out that Barnabas had land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we don't know if that land was on the island of Cyprus or it was somewhere around Jerusalem in Judea or somewhere else. And and really, that's immaterial. It doesn't matter to us where that land was. What we know is that unlike all the other tribes, God did not allot the tribe of Levi land within Israel. So all the other tribes were given land, that's where you'll settle, that's where you'll farm, that's where you'll make your living, you make your money off that particular area of land. The Levites were not so. They were scattered with the other tribes and they were given cities within those those particular areas where they could live, but they did not own land. So what that tells us is Barnabas, from the tribe of Levi, he was a Levite, The land that he owned to be able to sell here, he had probably bought himself. He had probably spent his own money to buy that land. Now what we see him doing is selling that land and giving away all the proceeds to take care of believers who are in need. 
So, so this is information that Luke gives us. We don't have to speculate about this. It's just all right there out in front of us, okay? And I want to pause here for a second. Usually we wait till the end of a sermon to, to reach our conclusions or draw some big observations. But I, I want to do that here first, just so we don't, we don't lose what we've just heard. We, we want to come to some conclusions. So I want to put two of them up here on the screen for you, okay? First of all, this ties directly to last week and the week before. Just as we saw with those other two Josephs, exposure to Jesus made Barnabas what he was. Nothing else. It was exposure to Jesus that made him what he was. Again, he's part of this group that traces its origin back to Peter's sermon. I mean, if you look back to chapter 2, go back there with me very quickly. Back to chapter 2 in verse 40. Listen to what Luke records about this group and, and their beginning. Chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he, that's Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Okay, so before that sermon, before that day, before Peter preached at Pentecost, there were some believers in Jerusalem. We know that, right? From, from back in chapter 1 when we were talking about Joseph of Arimathea, we know there were 120 or so believers in Jerusalem after Christ ascended back to the Father. 120 or so. That's, that's not very many, but there were some there. But now suddenly, verse 41, there are thousands. And most of them heard the truth from Peter. That, that's how they became believers. That's where they started being believers. They heard the truth from him that this Jesus of Nazareth, he is the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies. The stuff that you know from the Old Testament that's talking about the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what Peter was preaching to, him, to them. They heard from Peter that his death and resurrection were the will of God and they were the proof that he is both Lord and Christ. They heard from Peter that all who repent and believe in this Jesus will be forgiven of their sins, all their sins. Even the sin of murdering their Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. It was exposure to that truth that probably changed Barnabas along with all these other thousands of people all at one time. It changed Barnabas radically. That, it was that truth, about Jesus, that, uh, that truth about Jesus that showed Barnabas how wrong and how wicked he had been, especially concerning Jesus. And it changed him so that he was no longer at best indifferent toward Jesus, which a lot of Jews were. Some were hostile, but some were just flat out indifferent. We don't care. We don't see anything special, but we're not going to get all riled up, but just indifferent. And if that's how Barnabas had been, when he heard the truth about Jesus from Peter, he was changed to being obsessed with Jesus. So, without a doubt to me, it was exposure to the truth about Jesus that turned Barnabas into a disciple of Jesus. But the fact is, his exposure to Jesus didn't end with that sermon from Peter, did it? Because if you look at verse 42 of chapter 2, if you're still there, look at verse 42. What did Barnabas and these thousands of new believers do as soon as they started believing, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. 
Barnabas, along with this entire group, these thousands of people, continued steadfastly. They stayed there, and they kept doing this, and only this, sitting under the apostles' teaching and their fellowship. Right there with them. What the apostles were enjoying, they were enjoying. What the apostles were saying, they were, they were taking in, they were listening, they were feeding on it like food, day after day after day. Sitting at the feet of those men who had been chosen by Jesus himself to live with Jesus for three years. These were men who had been taught by Jesus. These were men who watched the miracles of Jesus every day. These are men who watched the righteous life and death of Jesus. These are men to whom Christ appeared after his resurrection. These were the men who were sent out by Jesus after that resurrection, sent out with his authority to teach others about him. And their doctrine as you might expect then, was thoroughly Christ-centered. If, if Barnabas was sitting with these guys and having fellowship with, with these guys every day, who was he hearing about? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It, it, was, it was all about Jesus, being both Lord and Christ. That's where Barnabas was, part of that group with those apostles. So he was saturated with the truth about Jesus, that truth from Jesus. That's what made him what he was. Just like Joseph of Arimathea, just like Joseph Barsabbas, it was exposure to Jesus through the truth. Other people directly, personally, Barnabas at the very least, through the truth that was coming from Peter and the rest of the apostles, day by day by day by day. That's what made him what he was. But tied to that, kind of inseparable from that, is the fact that exposure to Jesus made Barnabas do what he did. Not just what he was, he's now a believer. So in his heart, in his mind, he's convinced this Jesus, not just a man, definitely not a blaspheming heretic like he was killed for. He, he is Lord and Christ. He is the Jewish Messiah. He's the Savior of God's people, the King of God's kingdom. It's not just that now Barnabas is a believer in those facts, that he's convinced of that. It's changing what he does, too. Well, what did he do? Well, let me give you several things up here on the screen, starting with the fact kind of we've already looked at it, that he immersed himself in the body of believers. When Barnabas saw the truth about Jesus, when he was exposed to, to Jesus, he was changed to believe that truth about Jesus. It changed what he was doing, starting with the fact that he immersed himself in the body of believers. If Barnabas's home was Cyprus or somewhere else, he didn't go back there after the feast. If he was living in or around Jerusalem, he didn't go back to spending his time with his old family and friends, did he? He chose to be with Christ's followers all the time, starting now. He chose to be with the people that he now shared the most in common with. Those who had experienced the very same transformation he had experienced around Jesus, because of Jesus over Jesus. I'm not the same. Before, I did not believe in Jesus. Now, I'm all about Jesus, and so are they, and so I choose to spend my time with them. They believe the same thing that I believe. They love the same person that I love. They want the very same things that I want. They want to know Jesus, and they want to worship Jesus, and they want to serve Jesus like I do, so I'm staying with them. He immersed himself in the body of believers. He chose to make these believers his new community, 
You hear that word a lot in Christian circles today, community, community, community. I think it's overused in some ways, but it's true. You look at a man like this, he had a different community before, whether that was in, on the island of Cyprus or around Jerusalem, Judea, that area, different people that he associated with and hung out with and, and spent his time with. Now he's making a conscious, deliberate choice. I'm staying with them. They're my community. They're my family. All because of his exposure to Jesus Christ. And I said these were observations, conclusions. Well, let me ask you that, that, that question. Who do you choose to spend your time with? Who do you enjoy being with most and why? I mean, only you can answer that. I mean, each one of us makes that decision over and over and over again, probably every day. We make that choice for reasons that we have in our own mind. Barnabas's reason was, they're all about Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. I'm staying with them. They're talking about Jesus. They're learning about Jesus. They're loving Jesus. They're praying about Jesus. They're praying to Jesus. They're having the Lord's Supper together, which is all about Jesus. They're serving Jesus. They're serving people who are attached to Jesus. I'm all in. That, that's where I want to be. What about you? Each of us has to examine that in our own life. Barnabas was a great disciple of Christ, and this is one of the reasons he immersed himself in the body of believers. That's not all he was doing. Secondly, he devoted his gifts to serving others. Now, I don't know that Barnabas understood yet the, the concept, the truth of spiritual gifts. Paul laid that out in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Did a lot of explaining about how the Holy Spirit empowers and, 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 and energizes God's people to do particular things to serve God's people. That teaching came a little bit later on, right? So, I don't know that Barnabas understood that, but he wanted to help others, and he found out that he could do that with his words. He saw, probably, that he could do that well with his words. So he was always speaking to people. He was always trying to make their lives better, especially spiritually better, especially eternally better. Here's a man who understood the need of believer, unbelievers because he had been one recently. He, he could empathize. He could understand where Jewish people were coming from. When you talk Jesus with them and they give you that blank stare or, the, or the, their hair starts to stand up because they're upset, he could understand that. He had been there just recently. So he spoke the same word to them that had been spoken to him. He spoke the truth about Jesus and God's forgiveness to those who believe in him. He traveled all over the place with Paul and then on his own doing that to people in city after city and village and town after village and town, sharing the truth about Jesus Christ to unbelievers who needed that truth just like he had needed it days and weeks and months before. He also saw the needs of believers and he spoke the truth to them and he spoke the truth for them in the way that they needed it. He used his words to lift up God's people and support them, to free them from guilt and fear and bondage and shame and pride. He did it to, to help them answer their enemies and defend themselves before their enemies. He did it to give them hope and to give them purpose in their life. Barnabas served others this way so much, and he did it so well that he became known for that. The apostles, the leader of the Jerusalem church at this point in time, they're watching Barnabas every day, and he's using his words to build up God's people in so many different ways. And they said, he needs to be known that way. We're just going to recognize him that way. Forget his name, Joseph. 
He should be called son of encouragement because that's what he's doing all the time. So let me ask you, is there any way that you serve Christ and others so often and so well that you're known in the church for that? That's a heavy question. It really is because we're all watching each other all the time. I mean, we, we watch each other interact with us and with other people. Is there anything that you do to serve Christ by serving his people? You do it so often and you do it so well that that's kind of what you're known for. That's the way it should be with every one of us. Because each of us has been given a spiritual gift energized by the Holy Spirit we can do it in a way that everybody else just can't do it. So if we're faithful with that, if we're, if we're using that gift all the time, people will notice that. Are they noticing it out of you? He didn't just devote his gifts to serving others. He also sacrificed his own possessions for needy believers. Now, we're not saying Barnabas was the only one doing this. Again, back over in chapter 4, verse 34 says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. So don't think that, that Barnabas is the only one who did this. Lots of people were, were doing this, and it had been going on since right after the Peter's sermon, since those thousands believed all at once and came together as, as a group. They all started doing it at that point in time. Most of the believers who were there and could, were selling possessions to raise money for other needy believers. That's how much they loved each other. That's how highly they valued Christ's brethren, because they're doing it for the other believers. I'm not saying they never did it for an unbeliever, but, but this is going on within the confines of that multitude of believers who were together. They had all things in common. They were looking around, and they were seeing so-and-so can't take care of this, so-and-so doesn't have enough to eat, so-and-so has no place to sleep, so-and-so has a, a bill that's due, a creditor is chasing them, uh, I can sell some land, I can sell a house, I'll sell my, my horse, I'll sell my mule, and I'll take the money so that they can be taken care of. They loved each other this way. They, they, they valued Christ's brethren so highly. It's almost like they were thinking, if these people are so important to Christ that he gave his life to meet their greatest need, how can I not give up less to meet their lesser needs? It's almost like that's the way they were thinking all the time. So Barnabas sold his own land to do that very thing. Now, I don't know about you, and if you have experienced this, come tell me sometime. I'd like to know about it. But I've never seen anyone sell a piece of real estate just to give away the money to someone who was in need. I've never witnessed that. We did it as a church. We sold the two houses over here to support orphanages. But I'm talking about individuals. A person who owns real estate on their own sells that real estate deliberately. Only reason, because they saw a need and they could cash that real estate in to meet that need. I've never seen it happen. But that's what Barnabas did. And many others. Barnabas cared so much for God's people. And do you know why? Exposure to Christ. That's really what it comes down to. He was seeing every day how much Christ cared for those people and how much Christ cared for him. And that was driving what he was willing to do to care for the very same people. Question, is Christ's generosity to you 
producing generosity from you to his people? Genuine, liberal generosity? And I'm not even saying you should be out selling real estate to do this, but would you be willing to? Would you be willing to sacrifice anything for a brother who's in need, a sister who's in need? That's what Barnabas did. It's one of the things that that makes him such a, a disciple that we can look at and say, yeah, there's something to learn from this guy because he was sacrificing his own possessions for the needs of God's people. And tied to that is the last thing I'll point out to you about him in this section, and that is that he trusted God's leaders. Barnabas trusted God's leaders. Now, it's one thing to see a family member or a close friend who's in need, and because of your personal connection to that person, then you will sacrifice and give to their need directly. That's one thing. Even stingy people will do that occasionally, and they'll do it directly to someone they know and care about. But to sell a piece of real estate, and think about that in today's value, that, that's probably tens of thousands of dollars. You sell a piece of real estate for tens of thousands of dollars and you bring all of that money to someone else for them to decide whose needs to meet with it and how to meet those needs and when to meet those needs, that's a different matter altogether, isn't it? I mean, that's trusting. Think about it. I mean, your great burden might not be their great burden. You just, you just came up with $20,000 and you handed it over to someone else to do with it as they please. You might have a particular burden. You might see someone that's, that, that you're hurting for. You have compassion for them, but they might not be looking at the same person. They might not share your compassion. They might not be burdened for the very same person. They might not spend the money like you would have. You might not even know how they spent it. You may never see the use of your gift or the results from your gift. It's much harder to give that way, isn't it? But that's exactly how Barnabas did it. And you say, well, why? How? How was he able to do that? And the answer is, he obviously trusted that those apostles were sent out by Christ and that they were equipped by Christ, that Christ had given them the ability to see needs and care for God's people in the best possible ways in the multitude at that point in time. So it wasn't so much that Barnabas was trusting the apostles as he was trusting God's use of the apostles. There's a big difference in those two things. If we put our trust in people, what's going to happen? Well, very quickly, we're going to get disappointed. We're going to get let down. We're going to be critical and judgmental of what they do. But if we're trusting God's use of those people, then that's a different mindset. And it changes the way we view what's going on and what should go on. Well, that's what Barnabas must have been doing. He could do it because he was hearing every day the incredible things that God had done for his people in Christ and through Christ. The one who had sent those men out. The ones who were dispersing those gifts were tied directly to Jesus. So the more he was exposed to Jesus, the more he was able to trust what the Lord was doing with those men and with the offering that he brought to them. So how does your life as a disciple compare to the early days of Barnabas as a believer? This isn't the end of the sermon. Don't get your hopes up. But at this point in time, seeing what we see from Barnabas as a disciple, if you, if you lay your life as a, as a disciple down against Barnabas's life as a disciple, what do you see? Are you immersed in the, in the body of believers? Do you use, are you using your gifts 
to help people spiritually? Are you sacrificing possessions, even valuable possessions, for brethren who are in need? Do you trust God's use of his leaders and what they do with the money or anything else that you give for the benefit of other people? And your answers to those questions will probably show what your exposure to Jesus Christ has been like. like. Stronger, you've, you've been looking at Jesus. Weaker, you're probably not looking at Jesus very much or very, very closely, at least at this point in time. So ask yourself those questions. Now, that's an early bio of Barnabas' life, right? But what about later on? What do we see of Barnabas as time goes on? Because lots of people have had an emotional response to the gospel. You know, you've watched them walk down an aisle and pray a prayer, and they're weeping, genuinely weeping, and they're, they're baptized the very next day, and, and they're on fire for the Lord, but then it's kind of like a wave. They, they were way up here, and then it crested and crashed down, and you don't see the wave anymore. Lots of people have been that way throughout history, right? There must be a disciple. Where are they? And they're gone. It's endurance that matters, right? The, the, the test of real faith is endurance. Is it still there a year from now? Is it growing? Is it still there five years from now and still growing? Is it still there at their last breath? They're still believing what they claim to believe that very first day. Endurance is the proof. So what about Barnabas? Well, we know enough about Barnabas from Scripture to, to know about his endurance, don't we? We know about Barnabas's travels with Paul especially like on that first missionary journey. We know how Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, and they saw large numbers of both Jews and Gentiles come to believe in Jesus Christ. Paul and Barnabas organized churches all over the place in many different cities and towns and villages. In fact, in one place, Barnabas and Paul were so powerful with their words and with their actions that the people who lived there thought the the mythological gods had come down to live on earth with them. They they thought Paul and Barnabas were gods. Zeus and, and Hermes have come to be with us because they were so active on behalf of the Lord. And after Paul and Barnabas parted ways, we know that Barnabas kept serving the Lord in the very same ways, even though he wasn't with Paul. So we see Barnabas as a strong disciple of Christ as long as we have information about Barnabas. But I want to show you two very quick samples of the discipleship of Barnabas. And so first place, turn to the right to Acts chapter 9. We don't have to go very far to see this. So Acts chapter 9. Now, When I say Acts chapter 9, some of you are already thinking in your head, oh, I know what Acts chapter 9 is about. That's not Barnabas. That's Paul. That's Saul on the road to Damascus, right? And and, and you are correct. That that is the right chapter. Now, Now, let me give you the setting of that chapter, and then I'll show you where Barnabas comes into play. So Jesus came to Saul. I'll say Paul because that's that's who you recognize. Paul. On the road to Damascus, Jesus came to him, transformed him on that road, blinded him with his glory. Paul went on to Damascus, and after he regained his sight, he spent a little time with the believers in to Damascus, and then he went off to Arabia, desert, out there in the middle of nowhere. And it's almost like the Holy Spirit took him out there for, a, for months after months, who knows how long session, just from the Holy Spirit. After that, he came back to Damascus. And he went straight to the synagogues, preaching that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, preaching that boldly, 
debating with the unbelieving Jews, arguing with the unbelieving Jews, confounding the unbelieving Jews so much that they hated him and they plotted to kill him. Well, he found out about that plot, told the believers in Damascus, and they snuck him out of the city. Where did Paul go? To Jerusalem. That's the time when Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem and join together with the believers and the apostles who were there in Jerusalem. But there was a huge problem. What was it? Well, they knew him. They knew about this Paul. They knew the history of this Paul. They knew that he had been an enemy of Christ and an enemy of Christ's people. This was a cold-hearted, bloodthirsty, ruthless persecutor of the church. In fact, Acts chapter 8, Paul was almost personally responsible for chasing all the believers, most of the believers, out of Jerusalem himself. Went house to house arresting believers. And so most of the believers ran from the city at that point in time. Paul wasn't satisfied with that. That's where Acts chapter 9 comes in. He was chasing them to places like Damascus with authority from the chief priest that when you find them, arrest them and bring them back here and we'll put them on trial. That's what the apostles knew of this Paul. Now, here he is, that Paul is coming back to Jerusalem He's claiming to be one of those believers. He's claiming to love the very one that he had hated all along. He's wanting to join with the apostles. What would you think? I'd say, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. You'd be scared. You'd be really, really scared. You'd be thinking, we can't trust this guy. I mean, this is a trap. This is just a ploy. He's just faking it to, to get, his, get himself in here with us so that he can do what it takes to arrest us and have us thrown into prison, maybe even have us killed. We, we can't trust this guy. If we let him in, he'll devour us. And that's where Barnabas comes in. Look at verse 27, Acts chapter 9, verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus, Barnabas. Somehow, Barnabas knew Paul's story, and and we don't know how. We don't have that information. Had Barnabas just heard a rumor about it and took a chance? Did Barnabas know someone who had been in Damascus when Paul was converted and spent time there for three years preaching in the synagogues? Had Barnabas been in Damascus? Was Barnabas one of the early believers from Jerusalem that was chased out of town and he had run to Damascus and so he had been there when Paul showed up and started believing and started preaching about Jesus Christ? We don't know. We don't have that answer. But the fact is Barnabas chose to believe Paul's profession of faith. Barnabas chose to trust Paul's intentions. And even more than that, he acted on it, right? He chose to love Paul actively. Barnabas chose to do what he thought was best for Paul with some very obvious risk. So what you see is Barnabas, the son of prophecy, the son of encouragement, coming alongside Paul and using his speaking gift to help Paul. He came alongside Paul and he advocated for Paul before two of the most powerful men in the early church at that point in time. Here, Luke said he wanted to come to the apostles. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 that he didn't see anybody other than Peter and James. So Barnabas must have taken him by the hand and walked him to Peter and James and sat on and said, you guys need to know something about this Paul. Let me tell you about him. 
because Barnabas believed him, Barnabas trusted his intentions, Barnabas was going to love him actively and get him to a place where he could grow spiritually and be used by the Lord, even at possible risk to Barnabas. I mean, what if Barnabas was wrong about Paul? What if Paul really was the wolf in sheep's clothing that many believers in Jerusalem thought he probably was at that point in time? But you see, Barnabas didn't think that way. Barnabas' faith in Christ made him believe in the work of Christ. Barnabas believed that Jesus is both the Son of God and Lord, so he could easily have changed someone like Paul. What's the big deal for the Lord to change the heart of someone like Paul? I believe that could happen. His faith in Christ took all the risk out of serving Christ. Again, he believed Jesus is both Christ and Lord, so he can surely protect his people from any harm that might come from somebody like this Paul, right? So because of his exposure to Christ, Barnabas loved Paul with faith in Christ. Barnabas put himself out for Paul, and he used that speaking gift that Christ had given him to help Paul do something that Paul couldn't do for himself. That's a real disciple. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. That is a real disciple. Putting yourself out to make other disciples better to help them do what they cannot do for themselves, to make them better spiritually, to make them better eternally, and to even put yourself at risk to cost yourself something doing it. That's what Barnabas did for Paul early on in Paul's Christian life. There's a sample. Let me give you one more before we finish this. Turn a little further to the right to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Now, I would encourage you to go back on your own and read everything in between these little tidbits that were given to you because it all involves Barnabas. Barnabas was involved in all of it directly and indirectly, so you'll learn much, much more about Barnabas if you, if you read that whole continuing saga. We're just picking a couple of snapshots out of it, okay? Acts chapter 15. Yeah, you'll know Acts chapter 15 because that's where the Jerusalem council is recorded, okay? But let me tell you more that was going on even surrounding the Jerusalem council. The church at Jerusalem had picked Barnabas and sent Barnabas to Antioch to check out the rumors about all these Gentiles who were now believing in Jesus. The the apostles had heard about them, but they hadn't been there to meet them themselves. If they really are believing, we need to know about it. We need to help them. So Barnabas, we trust you. You're a a real encourager. You're, You're a prophet as well. So you can go up there. You can speak to them. You can find out the truth. You can encourage them in the ways that they need it. Go on up to Antioch. So Barnabas did that. He he went to Antioch. Then he went to Tarsus to find Paul. And when he had found Paul, he brought Paul back to Antioch with him. They spent about a year in Antioch together, teaching the believers there together. And then The church in Antioch picked Paul and Barnabas to carry an offering back down to Jerusalem. There was a famine going on in Judea, and the people in Antioch had given offerings and gifts to take care of the believers down there. They picked Paul and Barnabas to carry that offering back down to Jerusalem for the believers there. So that's what they did, back in Jerusalem. That's about the time when Herod killed James, the brother of John, found out that that made the Jews so happy, he snatched Peter and he was going to do the very same thing, but the the angel busted Peter out of prison in the middle of the night. You remember that story, right? Then God killed Herod for his, his pride and his arrogance. So after Herod died, Paul and Barnabas went back up to Antioch and they took someone with them. His name was John Mark. 
He was probably the nephew, some translations say cousin, but it's, it's more likely John Mark was the nephew of Barnabas. So they took him along. While they were in Antioch, the Holy Spirit instructed the church to send Paul and Barnabas out on that first missionary journey. So they did that. Paul and Barnabas left, and they took John Mark with them, kind of like an assistant on the road with them. Well, not far into that trip, John Mark left them. They, they, had, they had been to one place, and right after that first visit, that first stop, John Mark left them, and he went back to Jerusalem. We don't know why. Was he homesick? Had an emergency arisen that's not recorded here in Scripture? Was he afraid to be with Paul and Barnabas out on the road? Was he just lazy? Had he received a better opportunity back in Jerusalem? We don't, we don't know. That's, that's all speculation. The point is, he quit, and he went back home. Paul and Barnabas went on. They continued the journey. They kept preaching the gospel everywhere. They saw great fruit in many places before they returned back to Antioch. Then they went back to Jerusalem for that Jerusalem council that we know Acts 15 for, that council to decide what to do about the Gentile believers. The apostles then sent them back up to Antioch after they had made a decision about the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas, you go back up to Antioch, you take our decree with you, you you announce what we've decided, and you start implementing it among the Gentile believers there in Antioch. So that's what they did, and they stayed there for a while teaching preaching, strengthening the church there in Antioch. And this is where we see another interesting act of discipleship from Barnabas. You're in Acts chapter 15. Look at verse 36 with me, okay? Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Here comes Barnabas again. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. It's a great idea, right? We preached the gospel, they believed, we kind of got them organized, but it's been a while and they might be floundering. Let's go back, see how they're doing, see how we can help them. That's a great idea, loving out of of Paul, okay? What happened? Verse 37, now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, so you got it? Again, we don't know why John Mark left them the last time, but Paul hadn't forgotten it. That's still up here in Paul's, I remember, I remember the last time we took him somewhere with us, and look what happened. He left us high and dry. We wanted him to be with us. We needed him to be with us. He was supposed to be our assistant, and he didn't stay with us. So, no, we're not taking him along with us again. And the language seems to indicate that Paul didn't think he was worthy to go along with them once again on the road. So Paul refused. The result, verse 39, a sharp contention between Paul and Barnabas. Paul wanted one thing, and and we know Paul's personality, right? We know Paul's strength. I mean, we've even got the example recorded by Paul himself of where he got in Peter's face one time and called him out and said, you're doing wrong and this needs to stop. If someone will get in the face of Peter, 
that way. We don't have a hard time believing that Paul could get himself into something called a strong contention. But it's not Paul we're worried about here. We're seeing something pretty strong from Barnabas here too. He was just as active, just as strong in the contention. He didn't give up. He didn't back down and give in to Paul. He didn't say, okay, I guess so. I see where you're coming from. You're probably right. Let's take Silas instead and go on. Oh, no. Barnabas did not back down. He was standing up for John Mark. Why? He said, well, he was his nephew. He had to. I don't buy that. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think this is just a family thing. I think what you're seeing here is the son of prophecy, the son of encouragement, putting himself out for someone else. He had done this for Paul already. Now we see him doing it for John Mark. We see Barnabas coming to John Mark's side. We see him helping John Mark with his words. We see him advocating for John Mark, defending him trying to put John Mark in a spot where he could grow and serve the Lord. Again, just like Barnabas had done for Paul earlier on. Now he's doing it for John Mark. And Barnabas would not be deterred in that service. Barnabas would not quit serving John Mark that way. So I'll put it up here again, same thing. Putting himself out for John Mark the same way he had put himself out for the Apostle Paul. Barnabas knew what his gift was. He knew what he was given to do. He knew what he was supposed to be doing. He had been so exposed to Jesus that he wanted to serve the people of Jesus, the brethren of Jesus, however he could, and he did it with his words. I'm an encourager. I'm a consoler. I'm a comforter. I'm I'm a helper. I'm an advocate. I'm a defender with my words. I'm going to do this for John Mark, even though it pits me against the apostle Paul, the person I had already done this for myself too, okay? And this is what discipleship looks like, folks. And it's very interesting. We're not going to go look at it this morning. But it's very interesting that years later, when Paul is in prison, 2 Timothy, near the end of his life, and he's got nobody else around to help him, you remember what he did? He begged Timothy to go find John Mark because, as Paul said, he is useful to me in the ministry. And how did John Mark get from, no, he's not going anywhere with us again, to go get him, he's useful to me in the ministry? How, how, did John, how did Paul make that move from no way to go get him, I need him, he's beneficial to me? It very likely was because of Barnabas. And this act on Barnabas's part to stand up for John Mark and then to take John Mark under his own wing and to take him back home to Cyprus with him and probably worked with him for years. Was John Mark perfect? Absolutely not. He, he, he was a disappointing disciple at that point in time. He was wishy-washy. He was young, immature, weak. But that's exactly who Barnabas wanted to help. That's who Paul was when Barnabas first met him, too. So you find this discipleship coming from Barnabas that shows up in his service to Christ and his disciples. And this, ideally, that's what exposure to Christ produces in the heart of his disciples. The more we see Jesus giving, inconveniencing himself, sacrificing himself, using all he had to rescue us, needy, unworthy, disappointing, failing, weak, scared, selfish people, the more we see Jesus doing it, the more we're motivated to put ourselves out serving people the same way. So back to my questions. Are you doing that? Not... Have you ever done that? Not, 
Did you do that last year at some point? We're looking present tense. What's going on right now? Are you doing that? Are you giving away possessions, resources for brothers or sisters who are in need? Are you trusting God to use his leaders to to distribute your gifts as they see fit? Are you using your abilities, your gifts, to defend or build up, strengthen weak brethren? Are you taking the unworthy into your personal comfort zone, your own home, your your own safe space to give them all the help you possibly can? Check your exposure to Christ. What we are seeing of Christ will produce what we're doing for Christ because it's causing what we're thinking of Christ. If we're seeing him, we're likely to be acting like him. We're likely to be putting ourselves out for his people. And think about it. His people. These are the people that the Father chose and gave to the Son as his bride. These are the people that Christ, the Son of God, chose to give up the form of God, take on the form of a bondservant, come in the likeness of men, and live and die for. It was for these people. These are the people that Christ sent his Holy Spirit to protect in his absence. These are the people that Christ is still serving constantly himself at the right hand of the Father every day. These are the people that Christ is returning for to marry them as his bride and enjoy them and spoil them forever. If we won't immerse ourselves in those people and give ourselves to serve those people, then we're not seeing Christ. We're not following Christ. We're not even like Barnabas. Forget Christ for a second. We're not even like Barnabas as a disciple if we're not doing those things. Are you? Are you doing those things that Barnabas did but that Christ is doing perfectly for his church? What we learn, the exhortation that comes from this, again, is look at Christ as much as possible, all the time, Increase your exposure to Christ. See everything you can be seeing about Christ. And then follow him. Let's pray. Well, Father, again, I pray as I have the last two Sundays, and that is increase our exposure to your son. Yes, it falls on us. Yes, this is our responsibility to read the word and to be under the teaching and the preaching of the word and to be with uh, people who are Uh, people of the word and and, and Christ's brethren. It falls on us, but maybe we're here this morning and we're not taking that responsibility. Maybe we're here this morning and we've been terribly lazy about this. We've been selfish. We've been distracted. However we describe it, whatever words we might use to explain it, it can't be justified. And so I'm just begging for your help for any of us this morning who need it. I'm begging for your mercy your mercy to, to turn us around. Maybe it's your mercy in the form of, a, of some discipline, a spanking. And we know that your spankings are always with kid gloves on. They, those spankings are soft in some way. Even though they may hurt in ways, they're still soft. They're loving. They're, they're only for the best. And so, Father, whatever it takes to turn our attention away from 
everything but Christ and put it on nothing but Christ, please do that. Because I know what will happen. Same thing that happened with Joseph of Arimathea. Same thing that happened with Joseph Barsabbas. Same thing that, that happened with Barnabas here. The more we look at your son and who he is and what you've done through him and what he did and what he's doing and what's promised to us in the future because of him and in him and through him, the more we're looking at Christ, the more we're going to love Christ and appreciate Christ and want to give Christ what he deserves. And that's going to be all about Christ's brethren. Same people he served, that's who we're going to want to serve. That's who we're going to want to be with constantly. They're the ones that we will love most and put ourselves out for and and what will glorify him and please him more than that. So increase our exposure to Christ. Turn our eyes away from looking at worthless things as the psalmist requested. We want to look at your son. Who better is there to look to? Like one of the disciples said to him, maybe Peter, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. So turn us to Jesus. If we're already looking at him, keep us there. We, we will be tempted to go astray. Our flesh will want to look at other things that shine and glitter and there's glamour we think in them. Don't let that happen. Protect us from ourselves for Christ's sake, for our sake, for the church's sake. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.